0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, Episode 77, Theory Into Practice. Today we tackle our second biography episode of this series and put a bow on China for the season. If Chiang Kai-shek can credibly be accused of having been an empty ideological vessel concerned only with his own power, the same accusation couldn't be leveled against his eventual nemesis, Mao Zedong. While he was far from the only major Chinese communist figure, he helped push events the most and was integral to how the CPC developed into the ultimate victor of China's civil conflict in the first half of the 20th century. To begin his story, he was born on December 26, 1893 in the town of Shaoshan, about 35 miles southwest of Changsha in Hunan province. His father was named Mao Renxing and had served in the provincial armies of the Qing governor of Hunan. Ren Chang's service was lucrative enough that, after over half a decade, he had saved enough to buy land, eventually three and a half acres of rice paddies. So, like the Chang family plot, not huge, but still enough to make them well-to-do. Ren Shang was a frugal sort of guy, which alienated young Zedong as his father was stingy with both money and emotional affection. It didn't help that his dad was hot-tempered and prone to beating his kids. It also didn't help that Zedong was a rebellious child, at least against his father, and the two would argue relentlessly. Behavior that would be horrifying by Chinese standards of the day, as obedience to one's parents was considered a given. An early example that young Mao wasn't just going to roll over to authority figures. A big win for Mao's stubbornness was when his dad tried to arrange a marriage. Zedong was 14, the girl was 20, so a lot like Chang's own experience of being matched with someone much older. Unlike Cheng, though, young Mao flatly declared that they weren't going to be married and ran away to live with a friend, if only briefly. Despite the mutual hostility, Ren Sheng's saving and work ethic meant the family lived very comfortably by the standards of the day. That only got more pronounced when he bought up mortgages owed by local peasants so as to collect the interest on their debts, as well as setting up a side business of buying up rice and shipping it to towns. Effectively, Ren Sheng became both a banker and a rice broker, which the younger Mao would look upon, especially later, with distaste. But despite Zedong's aversion to his father, he would inherit his single-minded drive to succeed and frugalness. Young Mao also enjoyed reading late into the night, which was helped by the fact that he was afforded the luxury of his own room in the family home, which was not a given back then and would be seen as a huge luxury for most Chinese youngsters. But his experience in school presented greater challenges. The school system during the late Qing period was decrepit, and its staff consisted of those who could get through only the lowest levels of the examination system. The curriculum, too, was that hodgepodge of Confucian canon I described back in episode 66 that had accumulated over the centuries. It was all still in its original, unupdated form, too, which meant that, starting at age 8 and going into his early teens, Mao would learn texts through rote memorization and only afterwards learn the meaning of what he had recited. For a lot of China's youth in those days, that's as far as the experience went, rote memorization with only a vague comprehension. Mao, though, he dedicated himself to his studies far more and became well-versed in archaic Chinese, consuming the texts voraciously, He would later claim to despise the Confucian classics, but he sure quoted them to people an awful lot. Whatever his feelings, he developed a thoughtfulness and a capacity for engaging with philosophical and political ideas from an early age. It also meant that Mao was drawn to continued education and not just taking over his father's enterprises. And this is where Ren Shang might qualify for some credit, as instead of sabotaging his son to keep him around, he instead paid for Zedong's education for the better part of the next decade, starting in early 1909 after Zedong had turned 15. This could be seen as a classic case of a hard-boiled father, begrudgingly recognizing that not only did his son have ambitions, but that he had the capability to fulfill them. And after a lifetime of saving, the time had finally come to put the money he'd accumulated to real use, which, you know, kind of touching. Uh, young Mao still hated him, though. And while he was coming of age during the crumbling of the Qing Empire, Hunan was distant from those concerns for much of it. The local identity of the province, to broadly generalize a group of people who would otherwise have qualified for a decently-sized country in their own right, was that of unrelenting hostility to outsiders, Whereas Westerners looked for any way to get into China, they knew damn well to mine themselves in Hunan and stuck to the Yangtze River and its offshoots in the north of the province, which did include the uh, provincial capital of Changsha. The people were quick to form mobs against not just foreigners, but other Chinese as well. Even the massive Taiping Rebellion failed to penetrate the province. The isolation didn't last forever, though, and a deeply depressing incident would open Mao's eyes to the injustices of the world. In 1909, the Yangtze River flooded and ruined the crops in northern Hunan. The local British consul in Changsha and the regional rice merchants pressured the governor to keep allowing rice to be exported out of the province for the sake of profit. The governor's first inclination had been to keep what food was available for relief efforts, but the businessmen got their way. The cost of rice tripled and famine set in by mid-1910. On April 11th, the wife of a water carrier, and yes, carrying water was a career back then, grew so depressed at the sight of her starving kids that she killed herself. When her husband got home and found her, he killed himself too. The story spread like wildfire and mobs formed on the streets. What's interesting is that a lot of the city's leading men helped incite the mobs as they were eager to direct the public's energies at smashing up the foreign holdings in the city, and not theirs, which the mob went right to work doing, setting fire to Western-owned boats, buildings, and schools. It was a miracle nobody was harmed, but the foreign powers didn't act like it as they sent in gunboats once word got back to them. The Qing also cracked down and executed several accused ringleaders, although all of them were men of modest backgrounds only. The image of common men being decapitated stuck with Mao, and while he couldn't articulate just yet the full ills of the society lived in or how they were to be cured, he recognized the base injustice of the summary executions. In the meantime, he attended upper primary school. The school itself was just one county over from his village, so it wasn't like he was terribly far from home, but it was still a prestigious place to be, as only half a percentage of China's youth got to attend school at that level. Despite that, he didn't really fit in, as the other well-off kids were able to spend their parents' money a bit more freely, and Mao proved a poor contrast in his drab clothes. It also didn't help that Mao had his father's arrogance and stubbornness, which might have been handy defense mechanisms, but also kept him terribly alone socially. Not that it mattered in the grand scheme of things, he'd only be there for a short while anyway. By April 1911, he had transferred to Changsha and the big city. The change in setting was important, as the very small town Mao was then exposed to anti-Qing thought, something he took to rather quickly for someone who so enjoyed Confucian traditionalism at the time. Then, on October 10, 1911, the Wu-Chang uprising began, and suddenly everything was on the table. Changsha was about 200 miles from Wuhan, and well-connected by river, but it took the riverboats days to spread confused reports of local fighting, although the news was pretty consistent that Qing authority to the north was crumbling. By the 22nd, revolutionary agents entered Changsha. The local garrison and militia refused to fight, and the governor turned the city over without a struggle. Mao joined up with the expanding provincial army now that it was in rebel hands, although his unit was set to remain in Changsha instead of being sent out to fight Qing loyalists. The experience brought Mao closer with normal, which is to say, poor Chinese. He quickly made friends with those around him as he was able to write their letters home, most of them being illiterate. But it's important to note that he was still very much of the bourgeois at this point and was revolutionary like so many other Chinese in the sense he was anti-Qing. And once the Qing had gone away, there really wasn't much of a point for him to be in the provincial army. After six months of guarding Cheng Xia, he simply returned to his studies. By this time, Mao was 18 and really hitting that point in his education where he was going to have to think about a job. And to say the least, it was a weird time to be deciding on a career. Society had been totally upended and 1912 saw a radical opening up of Chinese society. Initially elated with the success of his little adventure, Mao found himself unsure about how to move forward. He was, in short, a youth who didn't know what he wanted to be. After a year spinning his wheels and notably bombing out of a business school, he settled in spring 1913 on training to become a teacher. He would continue on that path for the next five years, which would prove to be demoralizing ones as he watched his country sink deeper into chaos. During this half-decade, Mao kept to his studies in Changsha, adrift and uncertain. He was an avid reader, though, and at this point was consuming modern newspapers that were appearing, including Chen Dujiu's New Youth magazine. He had also been introduced to the anarcho-socialist ideas of Zhang Qianghu via pamphlet during the 1911 revolution and was certainly enthusiastic about stateless communalism, but he was still shopping around for a guiding belief system. What was definite was that his experience in Changsha during these years left him disgusted with the warlords. First Yuan Shikai and then later leaders of the cliques worked to use Hunan province as a base of operations in their wars in the south, and the governors they deployed were a capricious lot. Corruption was rife and the province was milked for all it was worth, in keeping with the standards of the day by outside warlords. In June 1918, he received his teaching diploma. He was 24 years old by this point, and that summer formed a study society, which was basically a debate club, with some of his fellows from school, many of whom would embark with him on the road to real revolution in the future. As a group, they accepted the invitation of a former teacher to stay with him in Beijing towards the end of the summer. The intent was for them to organize a study trip to Paris, but Mao was focused mostly on getting to the capital, not actually leaving the country. The change from a provincial capital to the major political metropolis of the country, was tremendous for Mao. While it took time to acclimate to Beijing, he was energized by the abundance of periodicals, the debates, the whole intellectual culture in play. His personal preference was in anarchism or anarcho-socialism, as Marxist teachings were still not widely read in China. Leninism was even less known about, and like Japan, China had little knowledge of the revolution sweeping its northern neighbor. In March 1919, the group traveled to Shanghai, where Mao spent a few weeks to say his goodbyes before going back home, leaving the Parisian trip to his fellows. His parents were in poor health, and both would pass before the year was out. Their deaths, especially that of his mother, stuck with Mao, as he had been away from them when they had fallen ill, and even as a rebellious son, he carried the personal guilt that he should have been there for them. He would get a job teaching history back in Changsha, and it wasn't long before the May 4th incident occurred. Those protests, which roiled China's cities as the populace found its voice, presented Mao with some opportunity to do something while in Changsha, and he organized a student protest group. He also set up his own periodical, the Jiang River Review, It was one periodical among many in Changsha alone, but his three-part essay published through July and August, entitled The Great Union of the Popular Masses, won him national attention. The essay basically spoke to the power of the Chinese people and how once properly liberated, they'd be able to remake the nation and maybe even the world. It lacked just how that was all supposed to happen, as Mao himself still didn't have a set ideology, but the sentiment was a hit with the New Youth Movement. One thing Mao did raise in the essay that was important for later was stressing organization. The May 4th incident had mostly wrapped up by the end of the summer, and Mao recognized that while it had been exciting, the tangible results were lacking. His conclusion was that the protests were merely the tip of the iceberg of what was necessary, that people had to come together and build a much larger, more cohesive movement. This conclusion was what led him to start looking at Marxism. The way that ideology focused on economic and material concerns appealed to him greatly, although he still avoided accepting it wholesale. Events, though, would continuously push him in that direction. The governor in Hunan, a man named Zhang Jingyao, or Zhang the Venomous to the locals of Hunan, took exception to Mao's work. He banned the student union and shut down the Jiang River Review in the back half of 1919. Zhang himself would lose his position in June 1920, when the Anhui clique that he was a member of lost its power struggle with the Xili clique. He didn't go quietly though, detonating a munitions dump outside Changsha and shaking down the city's merchants for a million bucks before hightailing it out of the province. Even before his fall, the people of Changsha and Hunan in general had become so alienated with rule from Beijing that they started considering breaking away. And I know that in every other case, when a Chinese province declared independence, they meant autonomy until they could be reconciled. Well, here was a case where they meant to set up their own government. All through September 1920, the provincial leaders discussed and debated self-rule. Mao was now in possession of his father's enterprises, and combined with his education, was considered a local notable, and thus was in the middle of these talks. He threw himself into promoting Hunan's breakaway from the rest of the country. The problem though was that the venture captured the imaginations of many, which caused kind of a frenzy, and the rhetoric became more and more radical as time went on, which induced those increasingly radicalized, including Mao, into advocating for rule based on the people's will. This spooked the more conservative elites, which is to say almost all of them, and the movement fell apart in November 1920. This left Mao devastated as the province simply came under the command of a new outside warlord once again. Through late 1920, the local Marxists in Changsha had been trying to get Mao to join with them, but he had resisted. Now, he felt himself out of options. The decentralized pathways of anarchism had failed, and he recognized the need for a movement that would organize and unite the whole of the country. If change were to happen, it would have to be comprehensive, not provincial. On New Year's Day 1921, the majority of members of the study society that Mao belonged to voted to commit to communism, with him among those voting in the affirmative. From that moment onward, he abandoned the anarchism that had dominated his thoughts previously and embraced Marxism. This new commitment came at a time when he was still in on what was basically the ground floor of the Communist Party of China, and he was part of the first Congress of the CPC in Shanghai on July 23, 1921. Not that the Congress was a great success, its second meeting was held in the French concession and broken up by the local police, with the fleeing members having to reconvene on a boat. It was indicative of the inexperience of the group that little was decided, and most refused to work with other groups in China, and also declined to acknowledge Moscow as a potential source of help or leadership. Still, he threw himself into his new work in building up the party. He focused on recruiting, which was a terribly slow process, but was more successful in Changsha than elsewhere. He was appointed secretary of the Hunan branch of the party and acted as the organization's spokesperson whenever there was labor unrest, which, given the depredations of the provincial government in the warlord era, was fairly often. In January 1923, Chen Dujio brought him to Shanghai and made him part of the CPC's Central Committee, basically its leadership group. It was a critical time for the party, as it was then that Sun Yat-sen was about to formalize his alliance with the Soviets, and as a condition of that, was going to take in the CPC as a party within a party. Chen and much of the leadership had been against the idea of joining with the KMT, which they saw as regressive, but the Soviets had been insistent. The CPC was far too weak on its own and couldn't hope to expand its base under the conditions of the day. Under pressure from Moscow, the CPC leadership went forward with the alliance. At first, a. Against the arrangement, Mao turned pragmatic, arguing that if the KMT delivered on a bourgeois revolution, then China could modernize, which in turn would create the proletariat, which would deliver their own revolution. The CPC would mobilize the proletariat in the meantime so that when conditions were ripe, they could make their move. Which, you know, was kind of the Soviets' entire intention in the first place. A big problem, though, for the early CPC's ideology was that the biggest group in China by far were the peasants. Unfortunately, many in the CPC shared the view of their counterparts in the KMT that the peasants were too primitive to really engage with. Modernity was attractive to them, and ergo they wanted the support of the urban proletariat, even though the latter group was a minute fraction of the population. Even Mao thought this way initially, and the CPC suffered from this attitude for a little while. The party barely grew, reaching only 1,000 members in 1925. And for Mao, those early years of the KMT alliance were wearing ones, as he disliked Sun Yat-sen dodging truly revolutionary policies and was outright offended that Sun went to Beijing to parlay with the northern warlords. Again, under pressure from Moscow, the CPC started to soften its stance on the peasantry and not seeing any other avenues of progress, Mao himself went back to Hunan to organize the farmers. He stayed there for about seven months in 1925 and helped organize a gigantic 100,000-person protest in the aftermath of the May 30th incident, the one where British cops in Shanghai fired into a crowd, killing scores of people. The end of his stay, though, came after a drought that year. The harvest was bad, and the landlords prepared to hoard the rice available to drive up prices. Mao organized several hundred peasants to take control of the granaries, ensuring food was doled out equitably. This stunt got the provincial governor onto him, and he had to flee in order to avoid an execution squad. This led him in September 1925 to head over to Guangzhou, then the KMT headquarters. Circumstances had changed greatly since he had left. Sun Yat-sen had passed away, Chiang Kai-shek had not yet assumed a dominant position in the leadership, and Wang Jingwei was the most prominent political leader in the KMT. And he was a lot more left than Sun had been. Wang, for his part, had taken a liking to Mao during a meeting a year and a half previous, and decided to put him in charge of the KMT's propaganda department. This was perfect for Mao, as he now got to disseminate his own views to the greater nationalist movement, pushing the narrative further to the left. Disavowed in Soon's days, class struggle became a slogan pushed by the nationalist communist front. He was also placed in charge of the Peasant Movement Training Institute, a branch of the KMT that, as the name suggested, was focused on organizing rural labor. Both departments would become dominated by communists. The next six months would be productive ones for Mao as he pushed for the KMT to turn harder left but this and other members of the CPC gaining powerful positions in the KMT provoked a backlash in March 1926, and Chiang Kai-shek suddenly arrested many of his rivals. Keep in mind this was not the purge from April 1927, it's just merely a foreshadowing of it. Mao pushed to stand up to Chiang, as he still wasn't in full control of the National Revolutionary Army, and many of its members and leadership were actually sympathetic or even outright loyal to the communists. The Russians and the rest of the CPC, though, didn't want to take such a risky course and declined to challenge Chiang. This meant Wang was packed off to a temporary exile, and Chiang became the dominant force in the KMT, which didn't bode well for the communists. This wasn't the only disagreement either. While the Shanghai leadership of the CPC kept to Marxist orthodoxy, Mao was rapidly coming around to seeing the peasants as the key to China's future first working with farmers in Hunan, and then running an entire bureau dedicated to rural labor, probably opened his eyes to the possibilities. This distanced Mao from the leadership of the party, most of whom were still fixated on the urban proletariat. And by 1926, he was a figure of influence only for the positions he held in the KMT, not the Communist Party itself. And without Wang, he was isolated there too. Everything in the KMT depended on Chang by that point who successfully cowed the Soviets with a threat of breaking the alliance. He would take little direct part in the northern expedition, preferring to continue his work of organizing the southern peasantry. The huge enrollment of peasants and labor organizations across the south that I discussed in episode 72 were in large part due to Mao's efforts. And while he himself didn't take part in the battles, the success of the KMT were made possible by sympathetic peasant associations helping the NRA forces along their marches. He was not personally rewarded, though, as his positions of leadership were not renewed at the end of 1926, although by that time he had come to recognize the left KMT as too feckless to stand against Chiang effectively and too uncommitted to even be useful agents for the communists. The CPC decided to make use of his experiences, though, and on November 15, 1926, placed him in charge of the New Peasant Movement Committee, based in Wuhan, where the KMT had moved their capital. This was when the Nationalists had fallen into two camps, with the left political leadership based in Wuhan and Chiang based later on in Nanjing. Mao, for his part, publicly advocated peace between the two groups, which was necessary for him as he needed their non-interference because he had a little something cooking for the new year. His confidence in the peasantry had been bolstered by the insane speed in which their associations had grown, from 400,000 in summer 1926 to over 2 million in early 1927 in Hunan province alone. It was once they hit that critical mass that they decided to reform society themselves. With Mao's enthusiastic approval, the Hunan peasants rose up against the landlords and gentry, establishing their own local rule and creating what conservatives decried as a terror in the province. And while the CPC leadership was apprehensive about what was going on, Mao recognized that once it got going, it couldn't be stopped by him or the rest of the party even if they had tried. It was now a matter of either opposing or embracing revolution once it had presented itself, and Mao chose to embrace it. This led to a split in the CPC leadership. The party line had to shift more towards Mao when Stalin caught wind of what was going on and ordered them to support the peasants as well. Those were heady days for Mao, but once again, there was a conservative backlash. The uprisings merely sped up what was probably going to happen anyway, and on April 12, 1927, Cheng launched his big double cross of the CPC. Mao was in Wuhan, still basking in the triumph of the uprisings ongoing in Hunan. Then news came in over the radio, signals of distress coming from the communists in Shanghai. They were being hunted down, and there wasn't anything they could do about it. The CPC's leadership in Wuhan for the next week bickered amongst each other with the Soviet advisors and with representatives from the Comintern about what to do next. At the end of the day, they carried on as best they could from Wuhan, all the while being purged from Shanghai and Guangzhou. Turned out, carrying on didn't work, and even in Hunan, the communist element was purged. On May 21st, the local garrison there, which had been standing aside while the province fell to the peasants, saw which way the wind was blowing and turned on the communists. Over three weeks, 10,000 communists and suspected sympathizers were killed in an orgy of violence that spread north to Hubei. Villages were torn apart and the peasant groups broken apart. The nationalist terror that replaced the Red One wound up killing over a half million peasants, putting down the revolts. Mao bravely volunteered to return to Changsha to rebuild the party apparatus there. On June 24th, he was made party secretary of the province and set to work on a new revolt— but was called back to Wuhan not even two weeks later on July 4th. There, the party leadership gathered to debate the future of their alliance with the left KMT. Over the course of a week and a half, it was decided to strike out on their own. Mao would stay in Wuhan for the rest of the summer, before being dispatched to take Changsha during the autumn uprisings. Which, hey, brings us to the point in the main narrative where Mao gained his first command. And as you might recall from episode 73, this did not go very well at all with two units of his troops getting into a brawl with each other before the Nationalists swooped in to disperse them entirely. Mao only barely managed to escape, and after linking up with the remnants of his troops, decided to take decision-making more into his own hands and retire to Jigongshin, which is actually where I'll leave Mao for this section of the podcast. But don't worry if you feel like you're missing out on the good parts, just as his story was really getting going. He's only going to be a bigger part of the narrative for China down the road, as he not only becomes a thorn in the side for Chang and the Nationalists, but also his rivals within the Communist Party. Even after having to abandon the Jinggongshin base camp, he managed to rebuild his vision. The stubbornness was probably one of the few character traits he shared with Chang, and is one that you might have noticed he also shared with the subjects of the other biography episodes as well. And just a little spoiler, it'll be a theme of the future ones as well. And that wraps up my coverage for China this season. I can only hope you've enjoyed the dizzying array of factions and conflicts that dominated the nation for the 17 years between 1911 and 1928. I hope you look forward to picking that back up again next season with the Nanjing decade and the turbulent years of nationalist rule before the Japanese invasion. When we'll get to it, I have no idea. Because next week, we're going to start a miniseries that I have to be up front with you, the listener, about. It's going to be the Soviet Union, and as it turns out, the vastness of Russia swallows everything, including podcasts ostensibly about the causes and contexts of World War II. But as the hosts of the biggest and most important battles of the war, it's vital to understand how a nation that could endure so much developed. It's a tale of discontent, revolution, civil war, social experimentation, and finally the rise to power of a little guy named Yosef Yugoshevli. Join me next week as we get this new journey underway. And as always, thank you very much for listening.